Welcome to the 6th of February 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town Thrall Season Show Podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bingamead, your host, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of Greenwich, Connecticut. And as always, it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town Thrall Season Show Podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M. and J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. It's Black History Month, and we will return to the American Revolutionary War era and learn about the fate of Greenwich's Black Loyalists to the British Crown. We'll also go back to the year 1897 and see how Groundhog Day was observed. In 1929, the Richard Mead House that was constructed in 1799 was moved from its original location. Also, we will feature news of a gardener on E.C. Benedict's estate who was shot stealing chickens, two Byram Shore sisters who eloped in 1914, and thoughtless automobile drivers in 1925. We will have all that and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by... A landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future, Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at Health Site 
pro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6500. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203-485-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. February is Black History Month. The Connecticut Ancestry Society has published in its latest quarterly journal, The Fate of the Black Loyalists of Fairfield County, Connecticut, Part 2, by Teresa Vega. For over 20 years, Vega has been engaged in family history genealogy with specialties in African-American and Puerto Rican genealogy, slavery and free blacks in the Northeast. The list goes on. I consider her the foremost authority on Greenwich, Connecticut's African-American history. She has been an invited lecturer to the Greenwich Historical Society and other organizations. She is also an advisor to the Greenwich Preservation Trust. Today, you'll hear excerpts of Teresa Vega's article. If you would like a copy, please contact me by email at greenwichatownforallseasons at gmail.com and I will send it to you. The Connecticut Ancestry Society was originally founded in 1954. Its mission is to promote genealogical scholarship, preserve source records, exchange family histories focused on southwestern Connecticut. Learn more at ConnecticutAncestry.org. This is a two-part article presents the overlooked and remarkable contributions of black loyalists for both the United States and Britain. And by the way, this would be for the American Revolution. Uh, Part one, established the groundwork for understanding where black loyalists found themselves while serving the British crown. In part two, I, that would be Teresa Vega, tell the stories of some of the black loyalists from Fairfield County, Connecticut, after their arrival in Nova Scotia and in New Brunswick, Canada, and in Sierra Leone. They converge on and were set out of the last loyalist stronghold of New York at the end of the Revolutionary War in 1783. I approached this topic as a family historian, genealogist, and as a descendant of some of those enslaved, formerly enslaved African and indigenous peoples who served as black loyalists and as black patriots in Connecticut, New York, and New Jersey. It is important to recognize that their acts of resistance and agency positioned them as quote-unquote founding fathers of the United States and Canada. While this article does not provide a comprehensive overview of Connecticut loyalists involved in the war, it offers a snapshot of the significant events that black loyalists of Fairfield County faced. These events highlight how the promises made to them by the British ultimately turned out to be grand gestures that led to a false sense of freedom. Henry, Phoebe, and Phyllis Lyon. Henry Lyon and his family fled Horseneck in Greenwich in 1780. Henry was 36 uh, years old and quote-unquote stout. Uh, His wife Phoebe was 40 years old, described as quote-unquote ordinary, 
and their daughter Phyllis was six years old. Henry was enslaved by Andrew Lyon, who lived in Rye, New York. Phoebe and Phyllis were enslaved by Andrew's first cousin, James Lyon, a well-known merchant. One can assume that this escape was planned despite knowledge of the risks of leaving before joining the Loyalist cause. Like most enslaved couples in Fairfield County, husbands and wives may have had different owners, lived apart, and visited their spouses and children sporadically. Given the small size of the community of enslaved people in Horseneck, this family may have known others who left before them. We don't know if Henry, Phoebe, and Phyllis escaped to Long Island first and then ended up in British-occupied New York City. In New York City, Henry worked for Captain James Grayson. The type of work he did is unknown. As Grayson was a privateer, Henry probably worked on his vessels in some capacity, foraging for provisions, carting supplies, cooking, etc. Phoebe likely performed domestic servant duties that included cooking, sewing, knitting, spinning, and weaving in childcare. The family arrived in St. John, Nova Scotia, on Captain Grayson's vessel Mars in the spring of 1783 after three years in New York. While we know little about the lives of the enslaved lions, we do know a lot about their transporter. Captain Grayson was well, a well-known captain who sailed with a letter of marquee from the British Royal Navy. He was from Liverpool, England, where he came from a family of sea captains and shipbuilders. The Grayson family routinely sailed from Liverpool to the Bight of Benin and coast of Guinea to procure enslaved people, whom they then transported to the Caribbean to work on sugar plantations. The Liverpool Slave Trader Database lists 68 slave trading voyages undertaken by various members of the Grayson family as captains, carpenters, or full or partial owners of vessels from West Africa to the British Caribbean islands. Henry, Phoebe, and Phyllis's fates are unknown, though a contemporaneous incident indicates that they were probably re-enslaved by Captain Grayson. Samuel Ives, a black loyalist, was purchased by Captain Grayson from Jonathan Ibeck, despite having been property of Captain Talbot, Virginia, who had bought, brought him to New York City five years earlier. Samuel had been General Birch certificate that was signed by General Howe, but Ibeck ripped it up and sold him. Captain Grayson brought black loyalists to St. John's, knowing that he had the opportunity option of re-enslaving or selling them for profit at some point. The enslavers of Henry, Phoebe, and Phyllis Lyon were a well-known merchant mariner family in Greenwich going back to the 1600s. They were involved in the West Indies trade and the transatlantic and New York Madagascar slave trades. The family also was involved in shipbuilding and shipping Byram granite to New York. Enslaved African and Native American people labored on their properties for generations. I, meaning Teresa Vega, am a direct descendant of the enslaved people who lived and died working for the Lions and the collateral families who shared their labor. The following merchant mariner families intermarried with the Lion family. Sherwood, Banks, Ogden, Knapp, Isaac, Purdy, Bush, Merritt, Green, Houston, Meade, Scudder, Bartram, and Hoyt, among other founding families of Greenwich, Connecticut, and Westchester County, New York. Cuff Bush was 50 years old and said to be quote-unquote ordinary when he made the decision to leave his extended family in Horseneck in 1778. Cuff was the father 
of the enslaved Bush family who resided at the Bush Holly House in Greenwich. Cuff Bush earned a General Birch certificate for his service to the Crown. At the time he fled, he was enslaved by Dr. William Bush, the son of Justice Bush, a wealthy Dutch merchant and town selectman who built a gristmill overlooking a harbor in the Koskab section of Greenwich between 1728 and 1730. Justice's son David Bush, William's brother, became the owner of this property when Justice died. Working in a gristmill was hard labor that required strength. Among the duties that Cuff performed were processing grains to make flour and meal, maintaining gristmill equipment, loading and lifting 800-pound hogshead barrels filled with grains. Cuff was a highly skilled laborer by trade, which improved his chances of success later in Nova Scotia. What motivated Cuff to leave? Was it the separation from his children who had been split among different Bush households? Was he married to a woman who was sold? Or was he badly treated by his enslavers? The silences in the archives tell us little about his life. What we know is that he left most of his children behind. Dr. William Bush owned at least 10 enslaved individuals. Three ran away, including Cuff, his son Andrew, and Unus Deaton, the latter two discussed below, Bush also owned Platt, Candace, Dinah Woods, Rose, Silva, Alfred, and Jane. Jane was the only one freed in his will. Not much is known about the other enslaved people. The four were born after the Gradual Emancipation Act was passed. While we don't know if these individuals are relatives of Cuff, we can assume they are, as the Bush enslaved were routinely inherited as property by the Bush enslavers or given as bridal gifts upon a daughter's or granddaughter's marriage. The extended Bush family were one of the largest slaveholding families in Greenwich, having owned at least 70 enslaved people. In 1783, Cuff was on the ship William and Mary, bound for Annapolis Royal, Nova Scotia. Clearly, he decided freedom was better than being enslaved. Captain James Houston transported black loyalists Cuff, Bush, and Glasgow Grigg of Horseneck. Houston or Huxton, um, had only become a committed loyalist after he was targeted by patriots for refusing to join the local militia and attend revolutionary committee meetings. His house and business were burned down in Jamaica, Queens, Long Island, and he and his family barely escaped. He was part of the merchant mariner community that routinely sailed between Connecticut and ports in Westchester County and Long Island to carry on their West Indies trade. Histon also was known to have supplied provisions to the Loyalists as they prepared to land on Long Island. Unlike other Loyalist transporters, he kept his word and delivered both Cuff Bush and Glasgow Grigg to freedom in Nova Scotia. Cuff was able to start a new life in Digby, Nova Scotia. He was among the first black Loyalists to receive 50 acres of land and survive more than a decade after leaving New York in 1783. In 1788, he married a former black pioneer named Judith Stewart at Trinity Church of Digby. Both were baptized in the same church on 4th of January, 1795, and Cuff passed away a little over a month later. It is worth noting that Cuff's wife, Judith Stewart, may have been enslaved by Captain Alexander Stewart, Jr., who lived from 1744 to 1808, who was involved in the West Indies and Liverpool slave trade. He also owned a Chandler store at 68 Water Street and an iron ore mine in Dutchess County, New York. Alexander was married to Elizabeth Mc 
Curdy, who lived from 1758 to 1830, and had previously been a resident of New London, Norwich, and Plenfield, Connecticut, where his wife's family lived. Judith Stewart chose to, f- to flee sa- slavery rather than be separated from friends and loved ones in the area. We don't know much about, their, about her escape, except that it happened in 1776. The state also coincides with the death of Captain Stewart's father, also named Alexander, who lived from 1715 to 1776. Was Alexander Stewart Sr. then Judith's actual enslaver? Did she fear that she would be sold because of his death and the distribution of all of his property? We don't know. Cuff and Glasgow reunited in New York City and left uh, on the same vessel heading to Annapolis, Nova Scotia. Glasgow also received his land allotment. He married a black loyalist named Judith, and they had a daughter, Sarah, or Sally, who was baptized in Trinity Church in 1800. Unfortunately, Glasgow died by drowning on, 20, on the 23rd of December, 1792. His death it was recorded in church records. While the fate of many of Fairfield County's black loyalists remains shrouded in mystery, it is erroneous to assume that their legacy has vanished without a trace. Over the past decade, I, that would be Teresa Vega, I've had the privilege of serving as co-administrator of the Malagasy Roots Project at Family Tree DNA. During this time, I've been engaged in the task of tracing my extended family's genetic connection, not only to black loyalist Rose Fortune, but also to other black loyalists such as Thomas and Charles Francis, Edward Godfrey, Aesop Moses, Anthony Pigott, Francis Clements, Joseph Cromwell, Emmanuel Jarvis, Andrew Izzard, Samuel Brothers, George Stevens, Isaac Johnson, John Pryor, and numerous others. Genetic genealogy can provide descendants with an avenue to reclaim their black loyalist ancestors, whose stories are often overlooked. While some may view black loyalists as, quote-unquote, the loser's losers, we regard them as heroes for pursuing liberty, freedom, and justice in the face of great odds. The decision they all made to take a chance on freedom is perhaps the most American of all stories. The best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut, is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together, thanks to a unique nonprofit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church. When you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good, at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. 
Speaking of coffee for good, your next hire is just a coffee away. Well, how about that? Now, did you know that Coffee for Good is an on-the-job training platform with Ableist for people with special needs? Graduates emerge with the technical and professional skills to be employed in jobs in the hospitality, service, and retail sectors. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue in the historic Solomon Mead House, circa 1858, on the campus of the Second Congregational Church in Greenwich. I encourage you to come to Coffee for Good and to see them in action. Contact employer at coffeeforgood.org and you can learn more about the learning program for those with special needs by going online to coffeeforgood.org forward slash employers. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. Greenwich, Connecticut has been a place where Groundhog Day has been observed for many, many generations. Um, I have a story that dates from February 6, 1897. It was featured in the Greenwich Graphic on the front page, and I'd like to uh, to share this with you. But first, a little bit of background about um, about Groundhog Day. I have to tell you that um, based on whatever knowledge that I have, its its origins were among the Pennsylvania Dutch. We call them um, Amish, of course. They were immigrants from German-speaking areas of Europe. The Germans had a tradition of marking Candlemas, uh, which is the 2nd of February, as Badger Day. Basically, it marks um, a, a day in which a badger emerged from its den, encountered a sunny day, therefore casting a shadow, presaging four more years of winter um, if it crawled back into its uh, den and um, so on and so forth. Well, anyway, let me tell you what happened in Greenwich in <laughs> 1897. The groundhog was happy, according to the the headline. It came out on Candlemas Day and didn't see its shadow. Tuesday was Candlemas Day, half your wood and half your hay. It was also the day when the, the groundhog, otherwise known as a woodchuck, comes out and takes a look at the weather. He didn't see his shadow on Tuesday, and hence the conclusion is that there will be an early spring. Of course, every New Englander knows the quaint story of the groundhog, that he comes out on Candlemas Day, February 2nd, and if he sees his shadow, he returns to his hole and cuddles himself for another sleep. But if the day is cloudy and he goes back to his winter home for a few short naps, well, years ago, when the old farmer's almanac was first published in the 1700s, the farmers used to put great store, quote unquote, by this saying about the groundhog, and the story was given some credence. But nowadays, they don't put so much faith in it. The groundhog and his relations to the weather does not receive respect respectful attention from scientific men any more than that the changes of the moon affects the weather as old new england people used to believe they claim that they are both quaint superstitions but here is a story from simsbury another town here in connecticut that's a good one mr george o butler of that place 
has a groundhog. The animal was captured in Granby uh, in June and has not eaten a particle of food since December 9th. 19th, rather. His cage stands where the sun reaches it at two o'clock in the afternoon, and he has a slight burrow in the bottom of the cage where he lies dormant most of the time. He has not moved from his burrow since January 6th until Tuesday, Candlemas Day, when, as Mr. Butler says, quote, he came out and sat up for about five minutes at just two o'clock, the time the sun would have shone on him, providing it had been shining. He then returned to his bed and has been asleep ever since. I am convinced that the groundhog is connected with Candlemas Day, unquote. The following comes from October 1925, um, and uh, this is about uh, even something that we have in the early 21st century, and that is problems with bad drivers <laughs> on our roads. The, uh, there's an editorial that starts as follows. Two letters appear in this issue from local citizens concerning the inconsiderate persistence of certain classes of automobile drivers in making themselves not only a nuisance but a menace on the pub- to the public welfare. The speed fiend does not limit his pernicious speeding activity north, to North Street in vicinity, but is in transitory evidence on Greenwich Avenue and Putnam Avenue every day, and especially at certain hours when the traffic officers are withdrawn from their guarded corners. Well, we don't even have that anymore. <laughs> it continues, The habit of the curious of rushing to every fire uh, and impeding and imperiling the firemen in going to and in the performance of their duties at these fires accompanied of by one correspondent should be stopped by the police and, if necessary, arrest should be made and adequate punishment imposed to serve as a warning. The nuisance automobile is becoming intolerable and should be and can be suppressed. Again, that's 1925. Here are the letters. Can you devote, the first one says, some space in your valuable paper to try and educate many thoughtless automobile drivers? The state, town, and borough all enacted laws this year governing the interference with a fire apparatus and ambulances by autos. The penalty prescribed by the state law is $50 to $100 fine or 30 days in jail or both. During every fire of late, autos have been a pest to the firemen getting in their way, blocking the roads, and hampering them generally. Ninety percent of them are curiosity seekers and rubbernecks, quote-unquote, again, this is 1925, who care for no one but themselves. The fire truck was blocked at Lewis Street last week, a block away from a fire. At two other fires, they could not back out of the road, so many cars were stalled back of them. It is just about time Judge James R. Meade made the acquaintance of some of the thoughtless ones. No one wants to see firemen or anyone else injured or killed. There are now plenty of laws to stop it and hope the police will snap into it, and that is signed by a fireman. And then we have this one, which is something that I have witnessed. Um, You know, I go out and I walk and hike uh, on the roads every day. It's part of maintaining my health, and... uh, I have to admit there are certain classes of people that not only uh, <laughs> drive very fast, but they also pass by uh, within inches of me and, um, and others who uh, walk the roads as well. It is something that we are not amused by, so I can certainly sympathize with what I am about to read. And it goes as follows. The two recent automobile accidents within a week of one another, the first on Round Hill Road, the second Sunday on North Street, should cause some question in the minds of the residents of Greenwich as to whether we are giving sufficient supervision 
to the traffic on our roads. The small signals recently placed on the corners are excellent. One of our difficulties appears to be fast driving. Slower driving would probably have prevented both recent accidents. If the tendency to drive over 30 miles is not curbed, it may easily lead to more accidents. Accidents are seldom foreseen. Well, that's true. If they were, they would not occur. When a car is not under control, a surprise of any kind may easily lead to an accident. Therefore, once more, let us be limited to not more than 30 miles per hour. 25 miles per hour would be better. If our selectmen would pass some such ordinance limiting the speed to what they think best and then enforce it, it would be a boon to the majority of our traveling public. Saturday afternoon, between 6 and 7, two cars passed me on North Street going north, both driven by young men or boys going at least 40 miles per hour. Very often, delivery cars and trucks in the late afternoon, 4.30 to 5, descend the North Street Hill at 30 miles an hour or more. Of course, they could not stop if there was any need of it. The offenders are not all boys and delivery wagons. There are so often grown-ups who should know better. Well, I agree with that. I know that the post road requires the attention of our motorcycle police, but I am sure, if it were possible, to watch the traffic on North Street and Round Hill Road that a considerable amount of reckless driving would stop in the assigned by George F. Dominic Jr., September 27, 1925. <laughs> In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby's Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup, ample free parking, member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. You know, on one of these recent cold, wintry days, I sought shelter at the cafe at the Greenwich Library. It's a wonderful place to um, uh, to go. I strongly recommend it. I happen to be fond of um, the, uh, the the coffee that they serve, as well as the paninis, um, especially the plain cheese ones. Those are actually uh, particularly nice. I happened to run into a friend of mine that I haven't seen in some time, and, you know, we started to talk story about Greenwich history. One of the things that I remarked to her was the fact that one of my Mead family ancestral homes happened to be on the site of the main branch of the Greenwich Library, and it was moved in 1929. And so uh, she was uh, rather intrigued by all of that, and um, I was asked if I would spend a few moments talking about that on the podcast, which I'm going to do right now, yes. Well, let me see. Let me begin by telling you that uh, the story that I'm going to share with you was 
from the October 1st, 1929 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic, in which the moving of that historic Mead homestead was published and announced to the public. And um, it, uh, but before I do that, I wanted to share you, uh, or share with you rather, a little bit of um, background um, about that um, that house. And um, let's see. Well, the the house was um, originally written about in a book by Judge Frederick A. Hubbard called "Other Days in Greenwich." And I'd like to share an excerpt of that. It's chapter. Let's see, seven. And the title of it is Rock Ridge in Deerfield. I'll explain uh, because it's Deerfield that we're going to, uh, uh, to concentrate on. Recurring again, says Judge Hubbard, to the centrally located farms as outlined in the beginning of chapter one. I desire therein or herein to include in one description the farms of Thomas A. Mead and Zacchaeus Mead. We're just going to focus on Thomas A. Mead today, by the way. Judge Hubbard says these two farms divided by the Glenville Road, comprising three or four hundred acres, stretched away from the post road in valley and hill to the north and west, ending in woodland. The Thomas A. Mead homestead was built in 1799 by Richard Mead and is known as Deerfield. And by the way, that is spelled D-E-A-R-F-I-E-L-D, not D-E-E-R-F-I-E-L-D. All right. The name is not misspelled, but has a significant meaning. Various stories are told of its derivation. The one most likely to be true is as follows. One of Richard Mead's family, in writing to a friend, described the fields of waving grain through the valleys along the knolls and ridges of to the hemlock woods, quote-unquote, all visible from the windows of the house, and characterizes them as deer fields. That's two words, D-E-A-R, you know, deer as in endearment, you know, whatever. Um, and so Deerfield Drive actually takes its name from the, um, the same um, incident, although um, in this day and age it's spelled D-E-E-R, I believe, um, F-I-E-L-D. I think it should be changed, but, you know, no one's going to change it on my, uh, <laughs> on my account. Anyway, the house was moved in um, 1929 and now uh, sits at 8 Grove Lane. A few years ago, it went on the market, and the uh, listing brokers uh, were kind enough to invite me over to um, uh, to have a private showing and to take a look at it. It, it. It's really a marvelous house, and it's very, very rich in um, in history. And so, um, with that, I'd like to share this article that appeared in October first, nineteen twenty nine, about the moving of this Mead homestead to uh, make way for the building that is now today the main branch of the Greenwich Library. The old Colonel Thomas A. Mead homestead on West Putnam Avenue, one of the old landmarks of the town, is being moved from its present original location facing on the post road to Grove Lane. The house and property were purchased from Mrs. Norman T. Reynolds, the former owner by the Turnpike Corporation, of which Ralph E. Brush, senior member of the law firm of Brush and Hannon, and a lifelong resident of the town, is president. Mr. Brush had more than a passing interest in the old Mead homestead, and by a special arrangement with the Turnpike Corporation, he took possession of the old homestead and is now having it moved on about an acre of ground at Grove Lane, and with his family will occupy the premises as their future home. Mr. Brush's grandfather, Amos M. Brush, was born in the old Mead homestead. And Mr. Brush's great-grandmother, the former Miss Elizabeth Mead, was the wife of the late Joseph Brush, she being a sister of the late Colonel Thomas A. Mead. 
Mr. Brush's great-great-grandfather, Richard Mead, built the Mead Homestead in 1797. Actually, it was built in 1799, but that's okay. And it was visited by General Lafayette of revolutionary fame in 1824. Joseph Brush married Sarah A. Mead, daughter of Richard Mead, who was Mr. Brush's great-grandfather. With these associations, Mr. Brush was anxious to preserve the old homestead and so decided to take it over, move it on his own property, and make it his future home. Some time ago, Mr. Brush acquired the late Judge R. Walsh property on Deerfield Drive, through which Estate Grove Lane is a part. The house is being moved back by the way of Deerfield Drive to the site on Grove Lane, and it will face toward the Post Road. Five generations have lived in the old homestead. The late Colonel Thomas A. Mead fought in the Revolutionary War, and upon his death, his son Zophar Mead became the owner. When he died, his daughter, the former Miss Bertha Mead, now Mrs. Norman T. Reynolds, inherited the old homestead, which she later sold to the term Corporation. The former site of the Mead Homestead, with the land adjoining it, is retained by the Turnpike Corporation, and it is planned to erect one or more buildings on the property containing stores and apartments in the near future. By the way, the store um, that some of the old-timers in uh, town would recognize would be Franklin Simon. It was a department store. Um, and then when that closed, it uh, became the place that we know today, of course, as the main branch of the Greenwich Library. Well, thank you for listening to the 6th of February, 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast. I'm Jeffrey Bigham Mead, your host. Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Mr. Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Contact me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. Learn more about Greenwich, Connecticut's history and listen to past shows by going to Greenwich Town for All Seasons.blogspot.com. Look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 13th of February, 2024. I look forward to being with you. Take care. Bye-bye now. Thank you.